It's not how much money we can make off this thing because that's very short-lived. If we can get this model right and show Pakistan and show the world that this is what a good Coding for Kids program looks like in a low-resource context, I think we can bring about tremendous change. Building a startup that solves important problems is one of the most fulfilling careers you can have. So how do you build a business that does well while doing good? Seeing kids that hated programming or didn't know what programming was and see them pick things up and learn and take it much further beyond what we have taught them. That is one of the greatest highs that you can have as an entrepreneur. And that's what keeps us doing this. Welcome to the second season of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. How do you improve people's lives? You could work at a nonprofit, volunteer maybe, or donate money. But what about having impact on a large scale? Few people have that much money. What if you made it your life's work? What could you accomplish then? I would argue that pound for pound, starting a social enterprise is the best way to serve the greatest number of people. They're agile, responsive, and perhaps most importantly, they need to earn revenue to solve problems at scale. Who better to learn from than people that are actually doing it? On this episode of Grit and Growth, we've got two early stage entrepreneurs both piloting small companies that are addressing big issues. We'll explore how they became passionate about solving problems and crafted solutions to meet their community's needs. We'll hear what they've learned from their own mistakes and how they're positioned to grow in the coming years. So why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sada Frehman. I'm based in Lahore, Pakistan, and I'm the co-founder of CodeSchool.pk, a coding literacy ed tech startup. My name is Sarika Bhattak. I'm founder and CEO of Kresa Green Tech, where we are developing sustainable, eco-friendly menstrual hygiene product. I'm from India, and I'm a mechanical engineer. The first and most important test of whether a problem is worth your time, does it spark your passion? Listen to how Sarika talks about feminine hygiene products. There is a lot of social and cultural taboo in India about the sanitary napkin. And you know, this issue is creating a huge problems to girls especially. You know, according to survey, around 23% of girls drop out of school just after starting their period. Just because of, you know, unavailability of this uh, menstrual hygiene products. And 56% of girls, they face urinary tract infection due to unhygienic condition in the washrooms and toilets. And because of this social and cultural taboo, people are not ready to talk about it. If they don't talk about it, how these problems are getting solved? It's important to follow that passion because you might be facing these issues for a long time to come. Even though Code School and Cressa are officially just over a year old, Sadaf and Sarika have been wrestling with their problems for much longer than that. I mean, the story really just does start, you know, almost two decades ago. I've been working in Pakistan for 19 years uh, in the corporate sector, but mostly in uh, the nonprofit sector as well. Pakistan was facing an education emergency at that time. We had the world's second largest out-of-school population. 
I think the next problem right after that was that the children that were in school could not read or write. But I saw, uh, you know, after working for around uh, 15 or so years, uh, we're so caught up in just coming out of that emergency. Kids are not in school. They don't know how to read and write. But we're not really thinking about the future. I mean, we're so mired in these basic literacy numeracy issues. What is happening, you know, to our children? Are we actually teaching them or equipping them for the future? Uh, you know, the future of work comes up, 21st century skills come up. And I, I really was, uh, you know, tremendously moved to do something, to be part of a solution and not really just uh, work towards, uh, you know, someone else's vision. My question to you is, define 21st century skills that you would teach in elementary or middle school? There's a very classic problem on how can a school train uh, for a job that doesn't even exist yet. Children today are going to graduate into a world where 65% of jobs haven't even been invented as yet. But uh, 21st century skills are kind of like a blanket of things that uh, we know are important in this digital world. And those skills are things like problem solving, uh, critical thinking, creativity, resilience. There's a bunch of these skills that are really, really important. What I found really interesting was that most STEM programs and coding or programming in particular has these spillover benefits and does inculcate 21st century skills. And programming for kids has been around for a couple of decades. It's grown really big in the US. It's really big in our neighbor, India. And so there are enough parallel markets to know that it works. You've identified now that the problem is that even though kids are getting educated, they're not being educated for the modern job force. So your hypothesis is that teaching coding, even to really young kids, is a great way to start to build those mindsets and behaviors. And I saw an opportunity because I felt like in Pakistan, we weren't really doing that at the private sector level, at the public sector level, at the policy level, in schools. We're just not really having a conversation about tech skills or coding literacy. And it's even more important for us now because we have a very young population. We're set to have 400 million people. And if we don't train our human capital or we don't invest in human capital, it's like a ticking time bomb. Where Where is Pakistan going to go if we don't invest in the future of our children? Sadaf identified a key obstacle in her field by observing what had been overlooked during her 15 years of nonprofit work. But Sarika found the issue she wanted to solve in a completely different way. You mentioned Cressa Green Techs makes sustainable sanitary napkins. What's the personal journey that, that got you to focus on this problem? During my master's study, we got exposure to one of the industry-sponsored projects from Johnson & Johnson Company. They wanted some innovation in current feminine hygiene product. So I came up with a circular shape pad, which when they open it, it becomes flat. Basically, it was a panty liner. So uh, they like the feel appearance of the product in terms of looks and aesthetic. So they grabbed the product and they patented it. After designing pads herself, Sarika couldn't help but see the flaws of menstrual products available in India. After coming back here, I got to realize all the problems related to, you know, current menstrual hygiene product. The basic thing is due to its complex structure, it is very difficult to recycle these products. And uh, that's why there are so much health and environmental issues are happening due to it. So the initial problem from your perspective was environmental. 
and also the uh, health issues also like the scientific napkins are made up of uh, petroleum based product it is uh, creating the issue in terms of comfort to women you know they find it very itchy or discomfort i thought that you know what if we make a completely chemical free and 100% biodegradable sanitary napkin which will be very comfortable it will be just like another cotton pad that they are wearing does such a product exist in in the us or european markets and it's just missing in india or such a thing doesn't so biodegradable sanitary pads are available in market though they are claiming to be compostable under composting condition but we have developed sanitary napkin which after application which get dissolved immediately in hot water so how how are sanitary pads disposed of currently what is the sort of waste slash reclamation process according to survey 28% of the sanitary pads they get disposed in normal routine waste and in terms of recycling sanitary napkin waste is manually segregated by waste picker every day and this manually touching of this pad exposes them to lot of disease causing bacteria which is uh, not good for their health but dignity of workers to touch this pad by their hand so you've added two really important dimensions to the problem the actual health and safety of the workers who deal with, and that you know frankly let's make sure we understand the importance of just their basic human dignity of dealing with this kind of waste in their job one way to tell if your problem is important ask who is it helping sarika had identified a problem that had environmental health and social impacts and affected multiple populations tell me what is the scale we're talking about here like how many menstrual hygiene products are being used every day in india there are around 336 million menstruating women in india and out of which around 36% that is 121 million women use sanitary pads so you know considering even eight pad per cycle india has 12 billion sanitary napkins to take care every year and most of these pads are developed with plastic material and it's very difficult to biodegrade and single sanitary napkins take 800 years to decompose so imagine the kind of waste that has generated over the years let's do the math 120 million pads a year translates into at least 120 billion over 10 years or a trillion non-biodegradable waste items stuck in landfills or burned and released as carbon emissions and toxins over just 8 decades assuming zero population growth that certainly qualifies as a monumental environmental problem it's important to develop a deep understanding of your issue because it's that granular view of the details that will begin to shape your solution when i kind of looked at the programs that were working on the ground i felt like programming was being taught like a subject that was even more boring than math like traditionally math is like considered to be like the the horrible subject and etc cetera, etc cetera. and programming was has now kind of taken the place as being something that's even worse it doesn't matter what the topic is if your teaching pedagogy is rooted in old ways of teaching you're going to turn it into something boring it's this is how you do it memorize this spit it back out to me and congratulations i've just ruined yet another subject for my my 8-year-old kids basically is that the story 
Absolutely. You know, just a very small example. Uh, there's a chapter within ICT. So there was a suggestion to put in binary. And the textbook, kind of some of the chapters that I saw, the draft ones, were drill upon drill upon drill on making students convert numbers to binary and the decimal system to binary and binary to the decimal system. I mean, that and, sounds so awful. I'd Honestly, I'd rather praying myself in the leg with a butter knife. I mean, God. <laughs> why? And, and the question is why? Why would you do this? As you begin to craft solutions, it can be easy to lose sight of the problem. You invented a hammer, and now everything looks like a nail. That's why we encourage entrepreneurs to develop a succinct problem statement and to be willing to refine it as they learn. Your problem statement is the touchstone for yourself and others. But the bigger the problem, the harder it can get to craft a good one. I'm gonna give you two sentences to describe the problem statement, the reason why Code School exists. What's your problem statement? Okay, I'm just gonna take a second. Uh, you will hear some mouse clicks. <laughs> and um, Are you going to your slides? <laughs> I'm going to my slides, and not just my slides, my talking points. <laughs> I take like copious- Yeah, but I don't points. want you to use those. Okay. I don't want you to use your talking points. I want you to just, you're, we're in a conversation, we're having a cup of tea in Lahore. You don't have your talking points in front of you. Okay. What's your problem statement? So I'm an introvert. Uh, you're reading, I can uh, see you I'm reading. an introvert, yes. <laughs> to prepare and think and then I speak. <laughs> no, that's the point. But that's the point, right? You Fair don't enough. you're you're so you don't need to prepare. You're passionate about this topic. So hit me with the problem. So I think we're at the inflection point in education around the world where the education system no longer has to prepare children for careers or jobs. The education system has to prepare children to think. So in order to do that, we have to retool how and what we are teaching our kids and who is teaching our kids as well. And so what Code School is trying to do is through introducing a programming curriculum for young children in primary and secondary, uh, in primary and secondary schooling, uh, set the way in which education in the 21st century should be taught. I want to pause here for a second. Make no mistake, Sadaf understands the problem that Pakistan's education sector faces. The issue is how to communicate that problem. A lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this because there's no formula for communication. There's no right way to share your story. You have to spend a lot of time outside your comfort zone to get comfortable with your own voice and rely less on scripts and bullet points and slides. We'll give Sadaf another shot at this at the end of the episode when she's a little bit more comfortable talking to me. But let's get back to Sadaf's solution, which combines curriculum, methodology, and delivery. We do this in three ways. So one is who is teaching. We're not picking up teachers. We are actually picking up technical experts and we are teaching them how to teach. The second thing we've done is we've made our curriculum uh, fun and accessible in two different ways. One is we make games. So it's all related to game design. We teach very serious programming fundamentals like loops or, or variables, but we have games. I feel like play is the universal language and children will always learn or pick things up if they're engaged and interested. 
what age group are we talking about here in terms of your students? Ages six and up, our average age is nine. The second thing we've done is we use prompt-based learning. And prompt-based learning means that there is the teacher has a prompt that they have to share with the kids, and then the kids come up with solutions on how to solve that prompt on their own. And it's really very hard to rote learn a solution when there are, by design, multiple solutions to that same prompt. Your core technology is your curriculum, right? That's the part that you guys have built that's unique because you're not just connecting random computer experts to students. They are learning the curriculum and they're teaching your curriculum. Absolutely. I think the other main thing that we're doing is identifying instructors. And it's, I mean, we often call ourselves Uber for coding, but you know, I mean, the bar for teaching a child programming is a lot higher than perhaps getting a driving license and driving a car. And so our role has to be in getting the right people in with the right skill set and monitoring them and coaching them along their teaching journey, as just as we are monitoring and coaching students on their learning journey. Each facet of Code School's solution can be improved and iterated on. And this is key because you're not going to get it completely right on the first try. Our role in, has almost become in the middle, uh, you know, making sure that there's quality assurance, the curriculum design, uh, testing the quality outcomes, training the teachers on how to teach, uh, getting feedback from parents and students. And so our role really has been in the, to be that person in the middle and, and marshal and get these people onto our platform. So how do you know if your solution is a good one? There's a couple of questions that together form a strong litmus test. So there's something called the value proposition fill in the blank. And it's, what's your product? Who are you helping? What are you helping them do? Or what pain point are you resolving? How are you helping them? And why is your approach better than the competition? Do you have a value proposition statement for Cresta Green Tech? Yes, so we have developed a product which are 100% biodegradable chemical-free, water-soluble, and cost-competitive to current market product. And considering the current present sanitary pads which are available in the market, which take 800 years to decompose, we have developed the sanitary pads which get dissolved and disintegrated within 80 seconds. Yeah, it's, I mean, what's interesting about it is that when you think of a value proposition statement, you're identifying a market segment. But you're your product has social and environmental benefits far beyond the individual customer, right? So it, it has institutional, it has national impact potential. At this early stage, a solution is really a hypothesis. This is what I think will solve that problem. And the best way to know if your hypothesis is correct is to test it. We call those early versions your minimum viable product. But actually building an MVP is its own challenge, as Sarika found early on. What are the biggest challenges you've faced so far just to get to this point of having an actual product that you're testing with customers? So, you know, when I came up with this concept, I patented it and then, you know, I started working on it, the research part and, you know, how I can make make a minimum viable product. So I started exploring it. Through this journey, uh, we thought that we would have got some more support in terms of R&D from suppliers. 
Why should they support you? I'm just curious because I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. They're a big manufacturing operation. You're, you know, a compelling idea and an interesting product. Why should I be engaged in your R&D process? Because whoever we are dependent on in terms of, you know, getting our product into the market, they should look at it as an opportunity. Like if our product gets hit in the, you know, in user, in, in terms of impact, it's going to be a good business for them as well. So they're not interested in doing small batch manufacturing of different versions of your product. Exactly. So you can't, like, you if you say, can you make me 500 of these so I can test them in the market? They're like, why would I want that tiny contract not interested? Exactly, that, that's what... That's what's happening. That's the problem, yes. Problems don't exist in a vacuum. They're a function of people. And different people sometimes require different solutions. So part of designing your product is deciding exactly who is it for. Sarika, it sounds to me like in your direct-to-consumer model, your target market segment is probably middle-income, reasonably well-educated consumers. Is that right? So our product will be uh, will not be as cheaper than the plastic sanitary pads, but they will not be so expensive like current biodegradable pads in the market. They will be in the medium, medium so that you know it will be affordable uh, to consumer. So in this sort of reasonably reasonably educated middle to upper income users of sanitary pads, what do you think is a potential market size there in a D to C model? If 121 million women use sanitary pad, out of which the target is 20%. 20% of women who are in the urban areas, in colleges, and, you know, going to corporates. Tech savvy, they're online, they order products online. Order products online, yes. Okay, so it's about 20% of 120 million. So the current biodegradable pads are expensive or not really biodegradable? What's wrong with them? So current biodegradable pads are a bit expensive. They are biodegradable only under composting condition. But here we are trying to provide end-to-end solution to the pads. Like right in front of their eyes, they can form a slurry and that can be flushed away. And by the time it reaches to, you know, wastewater uh, treatment system, most of the pads are already biodegraded. It's a really interesting question for the Indian market, which is whether that type of advertising works. Do Indian consumers care? So, you know, some of the consumers... They are more aware about sustainability. They want a sustainable product. But at the same time, the most important thing they need is performance of the product, usability of the product. That should not get compromised when you are giving them a solution, alternative solution that will be good for environment. So we have kept our product at the first priority of that, that they should not compromise the usability and the performance of the product on the cost of environment. This is a huge point. Do you know why your customers are buying your product? What are their priorities? Even if your product is a great solution in theory, it won't change anything if it just sits on a shelf. So talk to customers, interview them, poll them, get the data to revise your hypothesis and iterate. That's what Sadaf did, and it led to some unexpected revelations. I'm assuming your your first customer is the parent, right? There's no eight-year-olds out there signing up for code school. So you're really selling to parents. How? 
That's a great question. Actually, one of the findings from the Seed Spark program, when we were interviewing all of the parents, it was one of the first assignments we had to do. We had, I had so many surprise findings. I, I thought I'm so close to the customers. I've been obsessively measuring and talking to them. A lot of them are people that I know. Even then I had so many surprise findings. One of them was that even a child as young as six has a tremendous say in whether they want to continue an after-school program or not. And so we're kind of in a space of almost edutainment where we have to be interesting enough for our youngest, toughest audience. But in terms of access, we have to sell to parents because obviously uh, they're the ones that are on social media, which is a, a huge platform in which we're obviously leveraging for advertising. We also found out that we had been classifying a certain set of parents as non-tech parents because we just assumed that we had gone beyond the early adopters and already started reaching uh, you know, someone further down the curve. But everyone we interviewed was already sold on tech. And so we very, very quickly realized that we needed to kind of build the market a little bit more and we weren't even scratching the surface on accessing parents that don't know what programming is. Okay, gonna stop you right there. So you said something really interesting, which is you thought you understood your customer. You, you recognize the parents of the customers. You thought you understood them because when you started out, these were, some of them were your friends. The second thing I heard was that in market sizing, right, that's the term, what's your total available market and what's your serviceable, obtainable market, your assumptions about who might be in those circles were off. And one of the key reasons was that just because a 50-year-old parent has no idea about tech, it doesn't mean they don't understand where the world is going and want their kids to be ready. So those parents could be just as valuable a customer as a tech-savvy parent who's further along on the curve. Yeah, so we were assuming that uh, a certain kind of parent does not know about tech. And so we thought we were doing a pretty good job at building the market and accessing a customer. But when we applied the framework and uh, looked at the data, we realized that that wasn't the case at all. And so we've had to do a lot more work on market building or explaining what is programming, doing things like volunteering as computer science technical experts, uh, speaking at a lot of different forums and so on and so forth. What you discover about your target customer will also dictate how you sell your product to them. What are your sales channels? B2B or direct to consumers or both? Via brick and mortar retailers or online? Let's hear how Sarika and then Sadaf approach these questions. So what's the, what's the business model? Is your primary interest, I mean, I'm assuming you're driven by all of these important social and environmental considerations. So that's kind of number one. You're trying to scale impact. But explain to me how you imagine this uh, working as a business. Currently, uh, to getting starting awareness, we are exploring to more and more hostels, colleges, schools, hospitals, you know, so that more and more women can have access to our sustainable product. But our main business model would be D2C, direct to customer, through e-commerce website to various e-commerce channel. So they can simply click and buy our product. How do you monetize this business? What's the mechanism by which parents sign up for this and what do they pay? I'm just trying to understand the business model. In essence, it just takes a 10, now $15 Zoom subscription to start. 
because you uh, it's a service and our revenue is coming from parents that are paying uh, from all over the world. When a parent signs up, how long are they signing up for? So they're signing up for a month and we have a subscription-based model where a parent can get discounts if they sign up for three months, six months, or nine months. On average, around over 80% of our parents are on the nine-month model, which lasts for one academic year. As you iterate on your product, on your business model, and even on the hypothesis of your solution, you will make mistakes. Reality is messy, and you're not working with perfect information. Uh, I think the biggest thing, whether we like, uh, I don't know how it happened, but when we jumped into this, things scaled so fast, things were moving so fast that we were just kind of solving things, solving problems to kind of get stuff out there. And and it was a lot, very chaotic, even though Asad and I are kind of, Asad's been working for 15 years, I've been working for 19. You know, this is not something that we're new at. We've been, I'm very organized and structured in all of the previous uh, roles that I've done. But everything as an entrepreneur, everything is changing so fast. You're adapting so fast. You're getting feedback and, and feeding it into your programs really, really fast. Stepping outside and applying all of those theories that I already knew existed from business school, but having that time and mental space to apply those frameworks and actually just look at the data was something that was very, very uh, different. I heard two key things here. The first is that Going to business school is not the same as applying business school concepts and tools to an actual business, which when you think about it is kind of parallel to your observation about how math and, you know, history and is taught at a public school, right? Yeah, I understand the framework. I got an A on the exam. Holy crap, I now have a business and oh my gosh, it's a little bit different to apply them. So you yourself had to be that kind of nonlinear creative thinker. Now that it's been a year, and Sadaf feels confident about the Code School product, she's focused on how to scale. So you have 600 paying customers. Are they primarily in Pakistan? I'm trying to understand, you know, how you actually get your brand out there. Like, it's a giant planet. Where do you start? So this is all organic growth right now. And I think what we're trying to do is get more stable in our offering, our systems, the curriculum, getting our backend data backbone and the app up and running. And I think then we'll be in a better position to scale. So you're pretty confident in your product. You've, in a sense, with these 600 customers, you've done product testing. Presumably you've learned something and you've iterated as you've gone, but you wanna make sure your backend and your platform are actually ready before you try to massively scale. So, That sounds like another important lesson for aspiring entrepreneurs is, you know, there's this old saying, dogs chase buses. Well, what happens if the dog actually catches the bus? Then then what do they do? And, you know, what it means is beware of your, you know, your own sudden success if you haven't actually built the systems and are ready for it. Here's another point of divergence from traditional business. Scaling as a social enterprise means focusing on impact and reach and not just your revenues. What does success look like five years from now? We should definitely have scaled our online platform uh, globally. I think uh, we should also have started experiments on 
brick and mortar classrooms because at the end of the day in Pakistan, every child does not have a laptop and internet. And in order for us to scale, there is no way we can do that without going offline. And I think we also need to be sharing our learning and our curriculum with the system which educates the largest number of children. So I heard something really interesting there. Your success for you, you didn't define it in revenue terms. You defined it in terms of reach and scale of impact, which includes going to places that don't have internet and computers and influencing presumably the public teaching system, right? 100%. I don't think that as an entrepreneur I, or as a person, I would feel like I was successful if all I wanted to do is make money. So the scaling impact and scaling revenue, are those goals compatible? That's a very good question because obviously it depends on the speed at which you scale. If you want to scale really fast, a very easy way to do that is to lower your revenue. Then obviously there's, there's, there's always a constant tension. It's the same as scale and quality. Uh, the second you go to scale, your quality goes down. The second you're small, your quality stays up, right? So there are always these forces and tensions, uh, you know, that are all, almost always pulling you in different directions as an organization. But yes, what will the revenue model look like? What will that relationship look like? Will it be sustainable? Those are questions that are yet to be asked. As someone addressing big issues, you will be pulled in a million different directions. From problem to product, you'll have to stay focused on your mission. For Sadaf, there are no shortcuts to that. For an entrepreneur, you just have to know, uh, make those decisions, not just day to day, but think about three months, a year, two years, three years, where will this path take you and do you really want to be there? That's just something that's a lot of 5 a.m. wake-ups and meditation and thinking through things that need to be done to make sure you keep the big picture in mind. Part of that big picture is your own growth as an entrepreneur, something Sarika has noticed about herself. When when the Johnson & Johnson came to our university and, you know, this project, I used to be a backbencher. I'm not going to talk about it in public. I'm not going to speak about this kind of product. But then gradually, slowly, I adopted it. And, you know, like I said, in India also, the awareness is so much increasing about this topic. It's Gradually, it's changing and, you know, people are talking about it very normally. And that should be the case. That should be a really case in the future. That should be just like another product because, you know, it's a so normal things in, in, a, in a woman's life. Another North Star to guide you is the passion that launched the project in the first place. What has driven me till here is my idea and my passion to bring my idea into reality that I gave a thought that, you know, I have came up with this idea and I want to prove this till it comes to the market. So that passion is driving me. Even my son, my four-year-old son, he's also like every day he listens to an entrepreneurship and my, my aim is to, you know, teach him all the entrepreneur journey from childhood only so that, you know, he will grow up with the same attitude. So, you know, he has, he has developed his own startup in the like a play startup. So it's a, I feel it's a good start for him. Sadaf clearly shares this passion for her own mission. So we wanted to give her another shot to explain why education reform in Pakistan is so important and how Code School tackles that challenge. I think uh, what, what keeps me up at night and what helps me wake up in the morning 
is knowing that this is important to do because the future of Pakistan's children seems to almost depend on this. If we can get this model right and show Pakistan and show the world that this is what a good coding for kids program looks like in a low resource context, I think we can bring about tremendous change. And so I, I, what, what helps me wake up in the morning is not how much money we can make off this thing, because that's very short-lived. Uh, I think what helps us understand uh, or, or keep, helps us keep doing what we're doing is seeing kids that hated programming or didn't know what programming was or joined our first course saying they wanted to learn about history and geography through our coding program and actually come in and see the spark in the kids' eyes and see them pick things up and learn and take it much further beyond what we have taught them. I think that is one of the greatest uh, greatest highs that you can have as an entrepreneur. And that's what keeps us, uh, keeps me at least, uh, keep doing this. Sadaf, you just proved that talking points are your worst enemy. Because that <laughs> was the opening statement for the podcast. Like, that was perfect. You need to stop worrying about your talking points and stop reading <laughs> and just speak from your heart because you got this, right? That was perfect. Why would, like, if you were reading talking points to me, I'd be like, eh, okay. <laughs> I want to thank Sarika Patak and Sadaf Rehman for their dedication to solving such important problems. This has been Written Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Lori Fuller and Erica Amuake Ajay researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>